Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session On the Road Again, featuring Eddie Ayres, Bridget Delaney and Kari Gislason in conversation with Michael Williams, recorded live at the 2018 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Down the far end there is uh, Kari Gislason. Sorry, I don't know why I stumbled over your name there. Very close. Uh, Kari Gislason. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's not I can't a tell the difference between what he said and what I said. <laughs> Look, to be fair, it's your name. So if you don't pronounce it better than I do, uh, we've got something really wrong here, I think. But no, that, that was outstanding and had a, a hint of Icelandic. That, that's the highlight of my contribution too, I'm afraid. It doesn't get any better than that. It, it's good. That's where the bar is at this festival. Name yourself. Uh, Curry is a writer and academic who lectures in creative writing at QUT. Awarded a doctorate in 2003 for his thesis on medieval Icelandic literature, he's the author of The Promise of Iceland and The Ashburner and Sagaland, which was co-authored with Richard Feidler. As well as memoir and fiction, he also publishes scholarly articles, travel writing and reviews. Please make him very welcome. Thank you. Next to him is Eddie Ayres. Eddie and I were chatting in the green room about the particular relationship people have with a broadcaster before they meet them or see them for the first time. Eddie is a beloved broadcaster as well as a writer and musician. Uh, Born in the UK and uh, Eddie began playing the viola when he was eight years old. He studied music in Manchester, Berlin and London, played professionally in the UK and Hong Kong before moving to Australia in 2003. That officially qualifies as peripatetic, I think. Mm. Uh, in 2016, after many years presenting ABC Classic FM's breakfast program, Eddie accepted a position teaching cello, viola, and double bass to children at the Afghanistan National Institute of Music. Amid the chaos and unpredictability of life in war savage Kabul, Eddie, who was then Emma, had to accept his future and return to Australia to begin transitioning from female to male. He transitioned just before for his 50th birthday. Eddie's the author of Cadence, about his journey by bicycle from England to Hong Kong with only a violin for company. A violin on a bicycle seems like a, a, a very good idea. Um, <laughs> Danger Music, describing his year teaching music in Afghanistan and his children's book, Sonam and the Silence, which is out now. Please make him very welcome. And people have a similar beloved intimate relationship with journalists before they meet them for the first time, but according to the current president of the United States, they're also the enemy of the people. I've met Bridget Delaney and she's more the frenemy of the people, I would say. She's kind of very personable and then she'll just destroy you. Uh, the first chance that she gets. Uh, Bridge is a senior writer for Guardian Australia. She's previously worked as a lawyer and journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald, The Telegraph in London, Nine, MSN and CNN. She's the author of three books, This Restless Life, the novel Wild Things and Wellmania, Misadventures in the Search for Wellness. Her columns on the wellness industry for The Guardian have gone viral with more than 100,000 page views in the UK, Australia and the US. Apparently, we're looking for answers. Here's hoping... Bridge can find some. Please make her very welcome. Thank you. And I, I want to start specifically with the idea of travel writing as a genre in and of itself. And uh, two of you have explicitly had briefs as journalistic travel writers. Uh, what's that like? What's it like being on a retainer to a, a big newspaper and being their go-to for travel stories? 
it's amazing. <laughs> um, one year I calculated I got fifty to sixty thousand dollars worth of free luxury travel, which was actually a lot more than my salary at the time. So I was living in a very kind of strange universe where I'd go back to my share house and there'd be, you know, a, a tin of home brand tuna and uh, not enough money to buy toilet paper. And then I'd be flown business class to the Maldives where I'd be staying in a, a six-star luxury resort with a butler. So um, uh, my work life and my home life were very mismatched. Uh, but it, it comes with a lot of the modern travel writing industry comes with a lot of problems, and that is when someone pays for you to cover a resort or to go somewhere, you are, you are almost like their PR person and it becomes very difficult to write an independent um, article that, that says either this is great, however these are the problems, or don't go here. So um, that trend towards writers being paid by the industry to take trips has really accelerated since newspapers began their decline in around 2001. So before that, Fairfax had a, an ethics policy where you couldn't accept any free travel of more than like $10, which was a tr tram trip down to St Kilda Beach or something. Um, and after that, it was just a free-for-all because they just could not afford to send journalists um, away independently. I can't work out what I'm more nostalgic for, a newspaper company having an ethics <laughs> policy or a newspaper company. <laughs> <laughs> both, both dearly departed at this point. <laughs> Kari, it was that your experience? Were you concerned about the kind of commercial aspect of travel journalism? Well, I, I never really saw myself as a travel reviewer. Uh, I think I almost felt that I was there to experience things. Um, the problem I had was, a, was not so much a feeling of, uh, of, of obligation as a journalist, more just as a feeling of, of obli obligation as a, as a guest. Uh, and people make you feel very, very welcome. Um, in one uh, particular moment, uh, I was at a restaurant, a beautiful, beautiful restaurant, and they really did lay it on for me. Uh, but it had very high uh, ceilings, a little bit like this. Uh, and across the ceilings were timber beams. And the first thing that was brought out was this gorgeous risotto. It really was the most perfect looking risotto you can imagine. But just as it was being brought out, I heard this kind of faint scurrying sound. Oh. And it was coming from the timber beams above us. And I knew straight away, because all restaurants have rats, you know, and I knew straight away it had to be a rat. I could just tell from the scurrying sound. Anyway, I started to eat my risotto and uh, you can probably feel where... The, so in the corner of my eye, I noticed some flickering black. And I thought, what is that? And it was moving closer towards me until it flickered past my eye and into the risotto. <laughs> and it, it was rat shit, okay? It was, that was coming from the ceiling and landed directly in my risotto. Now, what do you do in that moment? Well, I suppose a, a good journalist writes about it. Um, I did the right thing as a guest, which was I moved the shit slightly to one side <laughs> and I finished my risotto. <laughs> because that's what you do when you're a guest in someone's place. You don't mention the rat shit. I, I'm going to be honest, you and I have a very different attitude to being guests in someone's house. There's courtesy and there's the black plague. It tasted fine. What are you talking about? 
Eddie, when you began that bike trip, did you have a sense of it as something you were going to write about or was it a journey for journey's sake and the writing came afterwards? Yeah, absolutely a, journey's for, a journey for journey's sake. So I cycled on my own, well, with a violin, so clearly not on my own. Uh, my violin is called Aurelia. So I cycled from England to Hong Kong um, back at the end of 99 to the end of 2000. And... Um, yeah, it was just something that I, I needed to do. I was in my early 30s. I'd um, gone straight from school to music college and um, straight from music college into work and I never really had much time to kind of think about life. And um, I was working in Hong Kong at the time and I was travelling backwards and forwards at least once a year, sometimes twice to Hong, from Hong Kong to back to England where I'd, uh, my family is. And I just thought, I have to, I have to see how the changes happen bit by bit pedal stroke by stroke and uh, and so that's what i did and it wasn't until many years later um 13 or 14 years later that abc books harper collins came to me and wanted me to write a book about something else which fell through and then they're like well we've given you a tiny advance of sort of five cents um but you're now legally obliged to us to write us something and i thought, well, you can just have your five cents back. But they um, said, oh, well, have you got any ideas for a book? And I thought, well, maybe maybe this can work. And so that's what I did. I'm interested in that idea of it as something that you needed to do. I think for any of us who are enthusiastic, passionate travellers, we have that understanding of it as a need. Was it a need born out of curiosity for exploration or it was a need born out of escape? Oh, look, probably a bit of both. Um, I was uh, playing viola uh, rank and file in the Hong Kong Philharmonic Orchestra. So rank and file is just those kind of faceless people in the middle of the orchestra. Rank and file, some people call them wank and smile, uh, which is uh, what you would nearly be doing on your viola. Um, so, um, look, I needed some independence. Um, I needed to get out and see the world. I really did. Yeah. So I, so I needed to find out about myself. I needed to test myself. And in a way, I wanted to escape. Did you keep a diary? I mean, when, when I did, you wrote it yeah. afterwards, was it how much yeah. did you draw on your own diaries? Yeah, a lot. But, but also, the really good thing about writing a book a long time after you've done something like that is that you've got your diary, and so you've got the sort of things that you might not have remembered. But there are stories that you start to tell pretty much days after you've experienced them. And so there were stories that I told in my book that I told dozens and dozens of times because they're such great stories. And so that meant that I'd kind of rehearsed the writing of them. I, I knew where to, you know, I knew the timing. I, I knew the gag. Mm. So in that way, it was actually really good. It was like my story, in a way, was self-edited for many years of telling the stories orally. It is interesting, that thing that happens where we feel ourselves turning and experiencing to anecdote even when it's happening. Mm. Are you... Do you lose yourself in travel anymore, Bridget? Or do you find yourself thinking about how you're going to retell every moment? Um, I mean, one of the really sad things about journalism, it's such a great profession, but after doing it for uh, uh, like 15 or so years, you become a witness to the experiences that you're having. So you step outside um, the experience and you look at it and you kind of are mining it as it's, as it's going on for almost for, for data. Um, an example was, um, a, an example happened this week. I was 
meant to do a story on Pink that is really complex, the singer Pink. Um, and I went to my uncle's house in Brisbane, tried to finish this story about Pink, and I tweeted, this story about Pink is going to kill me. And then as I tweeted that, a massive python came out of the slats of my uncle's house in Brisbane. It was two metres long and came at the computer. I'm like, what the hell is Pink doing? You know, has she got these powers? And while it was happening and I was really scared of the snake, I thought, oh, there's my column. Um, and then yesterday I was at the pool uh, just behind here at Elements and there's only like one other group there in the pool and it was pink. Um, so it's, it's kind of, it's funny how when you create stories about things that happen to you, they can actually turn, they can have neat endings. I, I'm sorry, pink was at the pool. And pink was at the pool yesterday. And did you go up and recount the snake story? Like did you well, feel like you had to close it off full circle? Um, so I was going to, but she looked. She was with her kids, so I didn't want to be yeah. that person. Um, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to run up and say, I was writing about you and then I saw a snake. It's yeah. not. Um, but, um, yeah, you, you do end up having a lot of experiences that are a good copy. It has to be said, Eddie, we've now had a rat and its shit coming from the ceiling and a snake coming from the wall. <laughs> so you need to think about your animal-based <laughs> surprise story that you've got in the repertoire. No, I played the viola. That's enough surprise in anyone's life. That, that is true. <laughs> uh, that is truly mm. shocking right there. <laughs> yeah. Gary, <laughs> uh, I want to ask you about, uh, about the role Travel's played for you in your sense of identity and the way in which you've told your own story. You talk about the fact that your mother was uh, an adventurous woman. She was a traveller. Oh, yeah. And, um, I mean, the reason I think I'm addicted to travel is, is largely because of, of my mother, actually. Mum was uh, Australian English. And, um, and actually, I, I'm sorry to kind of give you my family history, uh, but I just want to go back one step earlier, actually, to my grandfather, Harold. Um, Harold was, was in the Royal Navy, and, and after the war, he moved uh, his family from England uh, to Australia. Uh, and straight away, he, he hated the place. You know, he, he, the, the first moment he got here, he wanted to go back to England. And so the family began to prepare to leave again, and they sailed all the way back to England. And the moment he got to England, um, <laughs> He hated England uh, uh, and, and realised that he should have stayed in Australia. And so nine months later, he got on another, they all got on another ship uh, and came back, uh, came back to Australia. And, and What did um, your grandmother make of this? She was, a, she was different, actually. Uh, she was a sensible Yorkshire woman, okay? And she thought all this fussing around was nonsense, that the job of a family is to, is to stand still and, and to make the family work. And yet Harold went along was restless. With it. Sorry, he went along with Harold's restless feet. Yeah, until eventually they settled in, in Maxville. Uh, my mum went to a school, a very remote school called Thumb Creek, uh, which is not far from Maxville, and she would ride to school, you know, in the mornings on a horse. And in that moment, she promised herself that one day she would she would do the same thing. She would get get away, and it's that impulse, that need to kind of escape, um, the idea that there's some sort of an answer at the end of a journey that you can't acquire mm. here. Um, she'd seen all kinds of interesting places on these passages to and from England. And when her marriage ended, um, she sailed to Japan and then got on another ship to Russia and then sailed, you know, took the Trans-Siberian across Russia in the 60s to London 
Uh, and then she ended up in Oxford. She got a job at the psychiatry ward at the University of Oxford. And to me, the kind of golden moment is when she saw an ad in the, in the Sunday Times, which used to have the, the job ads, English-speaking secretary wanted, no tax payable. And she rang, and she took the job, and it was in Iceland. Ah. You know, she took the job at the very end of the world, as it was then. You know, Iceland in 1969, one supermarket for the whole country, uh, one TV channel, which was closed on Thursdays, uh, and the whole of July. <laughs> okay. And it was closed for the whole of July for my entire childhood, actually, growing up there. I mean, this really was not the end of the world, but a different world, right? And I think it's that ability to love that difference that probably marks a traveller. You know, you feel... I don't know, my test is, like, when you get off the plane and you're dog-tired, you get the shuttle into your, to your hotel, do you go to bed or do you go for a walk? You know, it's that need to kind of experience that first rush of a new place. Mm. Yeah. Does a traveller have to... Does a true traveller have to be an independent spirit? Do you have to be largely content with your own company? Do you think, Eddie? Oh, I was, I was thinking about my mum, actually. Um, my mum's 84 and she's a bit beyond travelling now because she's got atrial fibrillation and she's just had a stroke. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it makes um, international travel a little bit hard. Um, but my mum loves travelling and she, with my dad, when they were married, they moved to Nigeria and they lived there for three years in the 1960s. And uh, then they got divorced and mum was bringing up four children on her own. So uh, it wasn't any time or money for travel. But then once we'd all left home, mum, mum did do a lot of travel. Uh, but she travelled uh, on package tours. But I don't see really that that's any less travelling than you know, somebody who, who cycles from England to Hong Kong, you know, she, she went out with the same intent of wanting to find out what people's experiences are all around the world. I mean, she really did travel all around the world on package tours. She's awesomely travelled. Was part of that a social thing? I mean, did, did she partly do it to meet entire new groups of people? No, my mum's fantastically unfriendly. <laughs> um, if you saw her here, actually, tell you what, post her stroke, she's totally changed, and now she's just become this gorgeous woman. But before her stroke, <laughs> whoa, you wouldn't really want to cross my mum. <laughs> and um, uh, anyway, so this was obviously before the stroke when she was doing all this travelling. And um, no, I mean, she would sometimes come back from one of these tours saying that she'd ma made friends with one person. And so I say, oh, would you, you know, would you, are you going to write an e email or a card or something to Sarah or Tracy or whatever? And she'd say, oh, no, I don't want to bother them. So it's that very English thing of just not wanting to bother people, but also that's a kind of cover up for essentially just not liking people very much. <laughs> Bridget, were, were you a keen traveller pre-journalism? I mean, because you had several careers pre-journalism. Was, was your life always characterised by wanting to get on a plane and go somewhere else? Yeah, it was pretty typical. We didn't travel much. Um, I'm one of four one-income families, so we didn't travel much as kids. I grew up in Warrnambool um, in southwest Victoria. And I just did the thing where after uni, I'd saved a lot of money and before I started work as 
a solicitor. I spent a year traveling around Europe and I just had such a good time. You know, it was really life changing. And um, I've noticed uh, since then, which was the late 90s, early 2000s, a lot of things about travel have become a lot more accessible, probably to the detriment of the environment. So um, I saved for a year to buy, uh, to purchase the flight. And the flight now to Europe 20 years later is less than it was in the in the late 90s, early 2000s. So, um, Qantas are still using the same planes, though. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's still the same food from 1999 mm. on, on board. Um, so it, it's it's become a lot easier, and um, you know, there's uh, Asia's really opened up as well to Australians. So it used to be that everyone just went to Europe, um, and that was your big trip, and maybe people went to Bali. But now you can you can go over to the Philippines, you know, kind of really strange parts of Thailand. I just went to um, at this incredible trip last year to Myanmar to the Shan State, which is pretty much closed off. Um, I met a guy in a bar in London, uh, no, in New York last year, and over a few drinks, he said, "Do you want to come with me on a motorbike to the Shan State and smoke some opium?" Uh, to which I said. Okay, um, we, didn't, we didn't smoke any opium and I don't have a driver's license and don't know my left from my right, so I was pretty um, unstable on the motorbike. But it was just one of those things that was quite easy to organise. So, it, yeah, it's addictive and um, I don't think I'll ever get sick of it. Can you tell us a little bit about your, I think it was 2009 book, This Restless Life, which in a very big way deals with a generation who have a different attitude to travel, possibly to previous ones. Yeah, so um, Restless Life came about because I was living in London at the time and I noticed that there were a generation of fairly highly educated Australians who had decided to immigrate to uh, jobs in law firms or corporate jobs, mostly in the UK, New York and other places, and there was this diaspora of people that kind of formed a... Um, a meritocratic elite. Uh, so they moved, their loyalty was to companies. So they might work for Macquarie Bank and they'll, they'll go Hong Kong, London, New York. You know, they consider themselves Australian, but they don't necessarily vote or feel passionate about social issues here. They're not engaged in, um, in kind of yeah, Australian issues, but they are the true children of globalisation. And I was really interested in those people as a social force, like how are they going to shape, you know, the world. And in the end, um, that book came out in 2009 and there's been a real backlash to globalisation and a lot of the working visas that these people were on, particularly in the UK, have been wound back. So there was just this brief period of time where you know, there was a big brain drain here. It's also funny, I was reading back over some of the reviews of that book in preparation for today, and there's a, a kind of... It feels like that was the moment, the forerunner to kind of awareness of millennials. And so there's a whole lot of anxiety about what that kind of restlessness means. And lots mm. of your reviewers touched on being really anxious. This meant mm. we're ungrounded or without principle mm. or without... Do you think that's shifted? Do you think there's a greater understanding now or do you think that's just got more entrenched? I think it's, um, I think it's more entrenched. I mean, the question I asked in the book was, is it better to live widely or deeply and can you do both? And um, that question, I think, is, is very much still a millennial question and it's been settled in, in the form of living widely via social media and the internet. So you have people that have you know, they might have a thousand friends on Facebook, 
but they're not particularly connected to the community or place that they're living in. And I think that's one of the kind of major issues of our age. Um, and I was starting to see it emerging, um, you know, when I was writing that book. Mm. Kari, do you feel like a different person in Iceland to when you're in Australia? <coughs> yes. Um, yes, I do. I speak with a... I speak Icelandic. Um, uh, and I, I, I guess... Um, I, I notice it when I land in, in Iceland. The minute I'm there, actually, I feel um, the atmosphere is different and the, my, my position in the landscape changes, actually. Um, and I don't know really how to describe that any better, but it's just a feeling of rightness. Um, on the other hand, uh, my life is here. Uh, my life is in Australia. I, I love Australia. I have a, an Australian wife and children here, and so I've built uh, my, my existence here. But when I go back to Iceland, which I do about once every 18 months or so, um, there is a feeling that I've come back to something that's very elemental, you know, very basic in me. You open that answer by referencing language. Where does your kind of creative, writerly self find its most purchase? Well, I started um, learning how to read and write English when I was 10, uh, and, I, and I straight away took to English as a language. Um, I went to a school in England where they, they gave me remedial English classes, which they called non-Latin. Um, it, it was any student who wasn't very good at English uh, was excused from Latin class uh, and given extra English. And extra English was non-Latin. Uh, and I was also excused from Greek. And, uh, and I got this kind of rich English uh, education at that point. And, Within a year, I sound like I'm boasting, but within a year of starting to write English, I was top of the school in, in English uh, story writing. I just fell in love with English as a language, and I forgot all, all of my Icelandic uh, at the same time. And so when I started to go back to Iceland as a teenager and as a young man, uh, a big part of going back was actually about reclaiming a lost language uh, and, the, and the slightly different identity that exists in a different language. I think you, you, you are a slightly different person when, you, when you're thinking and speaking in, a, in another tongue. Eddie, you've written very movingly about the ways in which your time in Kabul uh, gave you a different sense of yourself and where you were in the world. Mm. Can you expand on that for us? <laughs> that, that, that's an um, old journalist trick. That's not actually a question. I don't know if you spotted that. I just said, <laughs> I made a statement which Eddie might not have agreed with. And then I said, can you expand on it? Which means that he's boxed into a corner. <laughs> that's right. Um, uh, sorry, I actually am going to fight out of this corner Go by on, saying, what, what do you really mean? <laughs> <laughs> what I really mean is that you went... Spit it out, Michael. You can do it. I can do it. I'm there. Don't worry. I'll get there. Uh, no, I'm interested. I mean, your identity was primarily uh, as a musician and broadcaster. The writing was, as you said, in some ways a secondary thing. Mm. Um, but when you made the decision, you'd had, you'd had an incredibly rough period back here in Australia and you decided you needed to go somewhere else. You needed to kind of escape and get away. And it was about teaching, but it was also... Um, also, it was a period where you began to assess what you needed um, for your own identity. Um, how did that intersect for you with... 
you've written so beautifully about it, and I'm curious about whether the writing came afterwards or whether that was a process for teasing out those ideas for yourself. Um, so what Michael is trying to say <laughs> is... <laughs> sorry. No, sorry, no, Michael. please. You can say it. So I, I realised when I was living in Afghanistan that I knew that I was transgender before, but I realised when I was living in Afghanistan that I needed to do something about it, that it wasn't something I could run from anymore. And um, before I moved to Afghanistan, I did have a contract with Alan and Unwin to write about teaching at this school, at this music school, which, you know, in itself, I'd, I'd think probably would have been, you know, a good book. Um, but whilst I was there, um, this, you know, um, thing just came and kept whacking me over the head until I accepted that I needed to do something about it, about my um, gender transition. And, um, and so really it was the writing that came afterwards. But it, boy, it was a great way to, to really try and wrestle these, I think, sometimes quite elusive ideas of gender, which I suppose in its own way is some sort of travel. You're, you're quite right for mocking me for being elliptical on that. I, but one of the things that really interested me uh, in your book, and it comes back a bit to what Carrie was saying before about being a guest... Uh, in a place and what mm. the kind of courtesy of travel is. When you're in a different place, you might eat the rat shit if you have to. Mm. I, um, I, I so wouldn't carry this. No, no, no. It's, I'm, no. Pr I'm pretty sure you're alone there. Bridget? <laughs> would I, I eat know about the rat your upbringing shit? at all. Would you eat the risotto <laughs> if there was rat shit in the side of it? No mm. way, man. No, no. What sort of question is that? A show of hands. <laughs> Anyone going to eat the risotto? <laughs> Uh, see here is this is okay, the decent folk good. in the audience. <laughs> I, I have to say that I did cover it up. Yeah. Like, like, like I moved the I moved the cutlery over the rat shit uh, so that I didn't see it while I was the, finishing the visibility the of it is not my concern. <laughs> just to be clear, it's a but good to see there are some Icelandic people in the audience. It's a delicacy in back. Iceland. <laughs> no, I guess the torture point I was going to make, Eddie, is that in part it was your awareness of cultural sensitivity when you're in Kabul and the ways in which you had to perform your gender, mm. you know, wearing a headscarf, mm. all of that kind of stuff that made your own internal need to transition kind of more acute. It was because you were a guest elsewhere and you were taking on cultural things of another culture yeah. that you realised what mattered to you in your own. Is that Well, yes, I suppose it did really bring it into focus because there's, there's sort of no middle way in Afghanistan, as I'm sure you can imagine, but there's a, a wonderful middle way here in Australia. You know, I used to go to the loo um, in, in public loos when I was female-bodied, and um, and I go into the loo, and you know, I was I presented as a fairly butch woman, a, a lesbian, and um, I, I remember one time, and I was at a in a loo in Golba. Now, if you ever go to Golba, there's a wonderful cafe there, which is also a bike shop. Does anybody know that cafe? <laughs> it's really yes. There we go. It's really I love good, this isn't crowd. it? <laughs> yeah, they 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 have some great jerseys there, great bikes, and really good coffee, and um, a lovely women's loo. So um, I went to the loo there, and I came out just washing my hands, and this woman came in with curled grey hair and a tweed skirt, pearls, and um, she looked me up and down. Bear in mind, I was female-bodied at the time, and she said, um, "Oh." you're in the wrong loo. And, um, and so I pointed at my breasts, which were never that big, and, um, and said, no, 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 it's okay. 
I'm a woman too. And she dropped the bags that she was carrying and she says, oh, I know who you are. I listen to you every morning. So she was a listener. <laughs> On Classic FM, which was, it was just fantastic. So there is this kind of wonderful middle way. You know, I could, I could float, you know, sometimes I go into the men's loos if there was a big queue in the women's. And, you know, the, as, as blokes, as you know, men don't look at each other in the loo, you know. You just, eyes down, focus, you know, go to the stall, it's, it's all fine. But women, you know, women really look at each other in the loo, and, and it's this—it's a very interesting, different thing, actually. Would you agree, women, yeah. or people who have used women's loos? I suppose I should say. Your, PC. Yeah. Your eyes meet in the mirror yeah. when you're washing hands, and it's very yeah, that's weird. right. So, I, in in the loo yesterday, a man yeah. tried to shake my hand at the urinal. Oh no! So I, no. He, he's a guest of this festival. I'm not going to name names, but ask me afterwards. I'll tell you, it was very upsetting. Oh. So, he so swapped wrong. hands for the handshake. I, uh, <laughs> that seems to me to be a breach of etiquette. So he's left-handed, the person we're looking for. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Keep an eye out. All right. Still. What would you prefer, um, shaking his hand or eating rat shit? <laughs> I don't see the problem with either. <laughs> Let's just say I discreetly covered it with cutlery. <laughs> well, this has gone off the rails. Uh, this is a session about travel, you know. <laughs> well, well, that's the thing. When you travel, you can get away with anything. Bridget, I want to ask you about this idea of, uh, of the fact that... Uh, of sensitivity as a guest, when you're travelling as a journalist looking for a story, do you adopt a crash or crash through attitude or do you try and kind of fade into the background and, and see what happens around you? Um, well, the worst was when I was sent on a... I'd never been on a cruise ship before and I was sent on a rock and roll um, themed cruise ship uh, that was away for about two weeks and it had all the stars of the 70s and 80s, like Leo Sayer, um, the, the village people... Um, but they weren't the village people. They were a different oh. iteration of the village people. And um, Was it Leo Sayer or a reiteration of Leo Sayer? It was the real Leo Sayer. <laughs> Which is even worse, <laughs> arguably. <laughs> I really like Leo Sayer. <laughs> Carrie, it's clear that your opinion just uh, is not valid. When I need you, <laughs> I just close my eyes. Yeah. Leo Sayer. <laughs> you should have done this story um, of, of the cruise ship. because I, I, I had the worst time. I didn't make any friends. Um, there was a woman there who, um, she would have been in her 40s, and her companion was an Ewok that she sat next to her at all the meals, and everyone had to pretend the Ewok was real and say things like, did Ewok enjoy dinner? Um, you know, people were just constantly blind drunk and gorging on like 20 meals a day and it was just it was just so horrible and I couldn't leave the ship and um, I was using a satellite uh, to update you know to keep in touch with friends and my internet bill for two weeks was one and a half thousand dollars so it was just a terrible two weeks and then um, I, I was doing the piece for the Sun Herald and I came back and I said there is no way I'm writing anything good about this cruise ship and then, um, you know, pretty much 70% of the advertising in the Sun-Herald uh, is cruise ships. 
Um, so I wrote the most kind of... It was a really boring piece about this. It just was very informational. And then um, uh, the Saturday, I, I spoke to the Saturday paper and I said, can I write the real story of the cruise ship and the Ewok? And so... Um, so I then wrote this like crazy takedown of, of this dreadful ship, um, and you know. So there are ways. There were. <laughs> it's actually probably being a terrible guess because it's like bitching behind someone's back. Um, but that's how I get around those sort of ethical problems. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I like that somewhere in the universe there exists a picture of Leo Sayer and an Ewok. <laughs> but. Uh, but, Kari, you can't, you know, pride yourself as being a great guest because you still uh, mocked them behind their back once you got here, the, the rat poo incident. Do you travel writing? How much did you feel of the different modes of writing you've done? Travel writing was a crucial one to cut your teeth on. Well, I think that's the exciting thing about travel writing, actually. Uh, Clive James, uh, his, I don't know if you remember, he used to do, have a travel show and he had a series of travel pieces called Postcards. Mm. Um, and they're wonderful. Uh, they're, they're James at his best, like really funny and knowledgeable at the same time. And what Clive James uh, said about his travel writing was that that's where he got to combine all his different skills. We know about James that he's a novelist, he's a poet, he's a journalist, he's an essayist. Travel writing collects them all uh, together. Uh, and if you look at some of the really great works of travel writing, I think that's what they do as well. They are multimodal in themselves. Um, Paul Thoreau, you know, the great travel writer Thoreau, he once said that travel writing should be difficult, uh, that there should be some, something difficult in, in, the, in the process. It can be a difficult question, it can be something about yourself that you're facing, it can be the journey itself. And when he said that, he pointed at a book by Graham Greene uh, called The Lawless Road, which is when Greene had to kind of escape England because he was being sued by Shirley Temple, of all people, uh, and he had to make a kind of a run for it and he went to Mexico and he went looking for the, the last of the, the Catholic priests who were still operating or, or, or practicing in post-revolutionary Mexico. And it becomes a kind of travel writing classic because it's green pulling everything together alongside the journey as it goes. So I think, you know, your, your question is, um, is that a place where you, you want to cut your teeth as a writer? I think it is because it allows you to do so many different things in the one, in the one story. It's funny, though, that, you know... That Thoreau quote's a really interesting one because I think of the great kind of travel writers. In some ways, he's less defined by difficulty than some of his peers. Like yeah. there's something about his process that is about, uh, especially his later works of travel writing, is about escapism and about vicarious travel. Mm. That it's designed to let the reader go on a journey um, rather than the kind of grit or the friction of it. Um, you've cited some excellent examples. Do the other two of you have... Favorite writers who might be thought of as travel writers? Um, look, he's he is a writer, but he's also best or was best known for television, and that's Anthony Bourdain. You know, an amazing, loved seeing the world through his eyes, and um, a lot of ideas for trips um, that I've planned have come from watching No Reservations. So, yeah, he was great. You come at travel through through food. Um, I really liked Paul Thoreau's Mosquito Coast, which uh, you know is is the kind of id of of travel, um, and I'd love to. This book hasn't been written yet, or maybe it hasn't. It hasn't come across my, uh, you know, I, I, I haven't seen it. But I'm really interested in the tension between like people from Australia going to developing countries in Asia, and there's a whole infrastructure built there, like spa resorts and 
um, luxury hotels and there's a really great book to be written about how the environment and culture and a whole heap of things are destroyed by the travel industry, yet that industry also employs a lot of people. So, you know, I think there's so many uh, kind of rich stories yet to be told. Mm. Yeah, the post-lonely planet planet is a different place. Mm. Mm. Not so lonely anymore. No. Or even lonelier. Hard to tell, <laughs> Eddie. Um, one writer who I've always really loved, who uh, is a, was a Polish journalist and travel writer, is Ryszard Kapiczynski. Um, so he was slightly discredited, I think, for some of his writing. Uh, I can't, I'm afraid I don't know why, but, but still, even if it was all a bunch of lies, it was incredibly beautiful writing. Mm -hmm. And um, the book that I particularly loved by him was a study of the Soviet Union, or the Soviet bloc, really, a book called Imperium. And that still, for my mind, is, um, I mean, it's sort of historical writing, and in a way, travel writing as well, but... But the way he writes about all those different parts of the Soviet bloc is, I just found incredibly moving, really like, like music. Like it, it just mm. got down to bits of my brain and my heart that, that previously only perhaps a Beethoven quartet had done. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I also think these three extraordinary storytellers have demonstrated why you should go and buy their books at the bookshop uh, today. They are charming and brilliant. Please thank them very much. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2018. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.